As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for joining us on the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. But now for today's show. In this episode, we're going to be hearing something a little bit different from normal, In November 2022, Ulster University hosted the first International Academic C.S. Lewis Symposium to be held in Northern Ireland. The event, called Now We Have Faces, was hosted by the C.S. Lewis Group at Ulster University in coordination with English at Ulster, and they have very kindly let us broadcast the talks on this podcast. The presentation you are about to hear is by Dr. David Clare, a lecturer in Drama and Theatre Studies at Mary Immaculate College, University of Limerick. The title of David's talk was The Man From God Knows Where, four plays about C.S. Lewis in which his Belfast background is ignored or downplayed. In 1958, at the age of 60, the world-famous Belfast-born author C.S. Lewis was recording a series of talks for American radio based on what would become his book, The Four Loves. The engineer complained that Lewis's heavy breathing was playing havoc with the sensitive sound recording. In frustration, Lewis cried out, I'm Irish, not English. Did you ever know an Irishman who didn't puff and blow? A few years earlier, Lewis was asked to write the introduction on Edmund Spencer for Harcourt Brace and World's high-profile anthology series, Major British Writers. Lewis spent a significant portion of the essay attempting to claim Spencer for Ireland, and once again, unambiguously identified himself as Irish. He wrote, quote, The Fairy Queen should perhaps be regarded as the work of one who is turning into an Irishman. It is true Spencer hated the Irish, and they him. But as an Irishman myself, I take leave to doubt whether that is a very un-Irish trait." Surprising as it may seem, there are many other examples of Lewis self-identifying as Irish throughout his life. Although Lewis lived mainly in England from the age of 10, he returned to Ireland for his holidays almost every year, right up until his death. Indeed, only World War II or an illness in his household prevented him from making his annual trip back home, as he would describe it. Lewis's English acquaintances were well aware of his Irish provenance. Memoirs of Lewis by people who knew him as an adult in England regularly note his quote-unquote curious accent, with some detecting, quote, the slight remains of a Belfast accent, or that he pronounced certain words in a, quote, very Irish way, end quote. In 1932, Lewis wrote to his brother about the fact that the sons of his English neighbors at Oxford were not respecting his private property, running through it repeatedly without shame or apology. Lewis says that he angrily confronted the neighbor who replied, quote, Ah, you Irish, wouldn't be happy without a grievance. It's really most remarkable, End quote. 
as Ian Wilson, uh, Ronald Bresland, David Bleakley, Alistair McGrath, and hopefully myself have amply demonstrated elsewhere, Lewis's Irish background is abundantly evident in his work. In his fiction, life writing, essays, and poems, he repeatedly draws on the Irish mythology he loved. He frequently uses Hiberno-English expressions and Ulster Scots words. He refers with familiarity and affection to places all over the island of Ireland, uh, which befits a man whose parents were both actually born in Cork. Uh, he creates very vivid Irish characters and even repeatedly critiques the black and tans, the orange order, and British colonialism. In fact, late in life, he turned down a CBE and reflected, quote, I hated whatever I knew or imagined of the British Empire, unquote. Given all these indications of Lewis's proud Irish identity, anyone well acquainted with his life and work would seemingly be forced to agree with his biographer, A.N. Wilson, who once described him as, quote, an old Ulsterman fond of verbal fisticuffs. End quote. Unfortunately, the Ulster Protestant is a frequently misunderstood person in Irish cultural history. Uh, with Ulster Scots and middle class and working class Anglicans from Ulster and indeed from across the island, uh, frequently ignored by artists and commentators. The dynamic of the planter and the gale, that is, Englishy big house landlords and impoverished Catholic lower orders, remains a fixed trope in the eyes of many, especially foreigners, when they imagine Ireland and its history. Simply put, Lewis, being an Ulster Scot through the Hamilton branch of his family and middle-class Anglican from a Unionist East Belfast family, does not fit many people's image of an Irish person. As such, it is perhaps unsurprising that in the four plays inspired by Lewis's colorful life, Peter Kreef's B Between Heaven and Hell, William Nicholson's Shadowlands, Mark St. Germain's Freud's Last Session, and Max McLean's The Most Reluctant Convert, the authors, two Americans, one US-based Panamanian and one Englishman, don't seem to have properly understood that Lewis's psychological profile and his reactions to the momentous events in his life were shaped by his Ulster Protestant background and mindset. Instead, they each elected to depict him as a stereotypically English Oxbridge Don, presumably because this provided a theatrical shorthand for emotional reserve and indeed repression and quaint stuffy traditionalism that made characterization much easier. Despite the merits of all four of these plays, this decision was a fatal error since the, their depictions of Lewis simply do not match the real Lewis, the humorous, often mischievous, though admittedly traditionalist Ulsterman, whose bolshiness frequently manifested itself in his fondness for the aforementioned verbal fisticuffs. Closely examining each of the four plays reveals the ways in which the writers failed to properly understand Lewis or his background. It also leads to the inevitable conclusion that each play would have been greatly improved had the authors chosen to engage with and not ignore or downplay Lewis's Belfast background. The first appearance by Lewis in a work of literature that I'm aware of anyway, was Peter Kreef's Between Heaven and Hell, written in the form of a sort of three-handed Socratic dialogue and first published in 1982. Although this work was not originally written as a play per se, uh, I'll be referring to it as such in this paper since its script-like format meant that it was quickly taken up by theater practitioners and regularly performed as a stage reading or even full production. Between Heaven and Hell is an imaginary meeting in purgatory between C.S. Lewis, John F. Kennedy, and Aldous Huxley, all of whom died within hours of each other on the 22nd of November, 1963. Interesting fact. Uh, in the play, these three men discuss theology as they await judgment, and each character represents a different common the theological perspective found in the Western world. Kennedy represents the nominal Christian whose beliefs border on atheism. Huxley stands in for those from a Christian background who, in the name of open-mindedness, have retained elements of Christian belief but have also embraced many aspects of Eastern religion without worrying too much about the inevitable theological contradictions uh, that such syncretism entails. 
Lewis, as you will have already guessed, represents Orthodox Christian belief. The play's ending is completely predictable if you are aware of the Roman Catholic Kreef's reputation as an outspoken Christian apologist. His fictional Lewis, after much debate, convinces the other two characters of the claims of Christianity just before they have to face judgment. Kreeft, a professor of philosophy at Boston College, has obviously immersed himself in Lewis's theological works, and to that degree, his picture of Lewis and his capturing of Lewis's voice is accurate. However, Kreeft completely misunderstands Lewis's personal background. While Lewis is not baldly referred to as English in this play, as he is in two of the other plays uh, that I'm going to be covering, he is presented as stereotypically English. His speech is awkwardly peppered with expressions like, I say, and by Jove. Uh, in the play, the only reference to Lewis's nationality is the moment when Kennedy dismissively calls Lewis and Huxley, quote, you Britishers, end quote. As I've argued elsewhere, Lewis was proud of his Irishness, but was also well aware that as an Ulster Protestant who had lived in England for much of his life, he was also on some level British. That said, he makes clear in The Four Loves that he sees Britishness as a supranational identity comprised of the English, Scottish, Welsh, and Northern Irish peoples, and he regarded his nationality within the British scheme as Irish, as the quotes cited above amply demonstrate. Thus, Kreef's decision to call Lewis British is technically correct, but the author obviously chose this nomenclature because it helped him to elide the complications that would inevitably have arisen had he portrayed Lewis as a Belfast Protestant. For example, if Kreef acknowledged Lewis's Irish Anglican background, he would have had to relate it to Kennedy's Irish Catholic cultural inheritance, and Kennedy's Catholic background is openly discussed by the two men in the play. Lewis and Kennedy would have had to seriously discuss sectarian issues as well as different Irish traditions and would have distracted from Kreef's didactic theological purposes in the piece. Kreef's awareness that he was ignoring Lewis's Irish background may explain why, in the 2008 postscript to the second edition of Between Heaven and Hell, he promotes George Sayer's biography of Lewis as, quote, the best and most reliable, unquote. And this is, of course, the Lewis biography that most aggress aggressively attempts to deny Lewis's Irish identity. The second fictional work inspired by Lewis's life was William Nicholson's script for a 1985 BBC television drama entitled Shadowlands, which starred Joss Ackland as Lewis and Claire Bloom as his wife Joy. Nicholson subsequently turned this well-received script into a very successful stage play, which premiered at the Theatre Royal in Plymouth in October 1989 before transferring to the Queen's Theatre in London. Nigel Hawthorne actually played Lewis, and Jean Lapoter uh, played Joy. Of course, most people know Shadowlands from the 1994 Hollywood film version starring Anthony Hopkins as Lewis and Deborah Winger as Joy, uh, which also featured a script by Nicholson, albeit a watered-down and arguably less effective one. While this Hollywood version may be the best known of the three, Shadowlands, uh, it is the stage play that arguably has had the most successful afterlife. In 2007, for example, there was a major revival starring Charles Dance and Janie D, which toured the UK before finishing uh, in London's West End. And in November 2008, I saw a fine Irish production uh, in Dublin. Um, now, Nicholson's Shadowlands tells the story of Lewis's late marriage to the American poet Joy Davidman and the ways in which his faith was shaken by her ultimately unsuccessful battle with cancer. It is a moving work covering very emotional themes, but its most obvious portrayal of the real story of Lewis and his wife is the suppression of Lewis's Belfast background. For example, when Joy expounds a theory about the English in Act One, Lewis responds by referring to the English as we. Likewise, when she disparages the English, he never joins in her criticisms, as one might expect from the real Irish Lewis, who once wrote in a letter to Belfast friend Arthur Greaves, quote, like all Irish people who meet in England, we ended by criticisms on the invincible flippancy and dullness of the Anglo-Saxon race, end quote. 
Most damningly, when Lewis discusses traumatic events from his childhood, such as the death of his mother Flora, he never mentions that they all took place in Ireland. Likewise, Nicholson has Lewis and Joy go to Greece on their honeymoon. In real life, their honeymoon took place at the Crawfordsburn Inn in County Down, because Lewis wanted to show his new bride his home country and his beloved hills of Down. The Greece trip came months later. The Irish honeymoon is, is of course, not mentioned at all in the play. Why is Nicholson so careful to suppress Lewis's Irish background and present him as God's Englishman? Uh, seemingly because Englishness provides a cheap theatrical shorthand for emotional reserve and repression. Depicting Lewis this way enables Nicholson to tritely use the brash, loud American joy to loosen up the stuffy English bachelor. While one might assume that the real Lewis was quite set in his ways, having lived for decades as an unmarried man, even this picture is inaccurate. He actually lived for most of his bachelor years with an older Irish woman, Mrs. Janie King Moore, born in County Tyrone and raised in County Louth. And the relationship between Lewis and Mrs. Moore, most biographers believe, was sexual. And it was, at the very least, strongly domestic. She was, of course, the mother of his army friend, Paddy Moore, born in Dunleary, raised in County Wicklow, uh, who died on the Somme. Anyway. In Nicholson's Shadowlands, Lewis's emotional reserve and indeed repression is openly referenced when Lewis says that he is, quote, not used to discussing romantic matters, end quote. And also when the vicar is surprised by Lewis's, quote, passionate outburst, end quote, when Joy gets very ill. In reality, while Lewis was distrustful of big displays of emotion because he associated them with his father, Albert, who flew off the handle on the least provocation, he was actually prone to them himself, especially when arguing that fondness for verbal fisticuffs again. Fans of Lewis's writing will also testify that he's frequently quite open about his emotions, especially in his poetry and life writing. Therefore, Nicholson's picture of Lewis as a buttoned up Englishman who is frightened of his feelings just doesn't ring true. In light of this, I contend that the play would have been much more interesting if Nicholson had examined Lewis's love-hate relationship with emotional outbursts in light of his status as an Irishman in England. Likewise, I would have liked to have seen him engage with Lewis's history of complicated relationships with women, including the curious affair with the formidable Irishwoman Mrs. Moore, instead of choosing to portray him as a cliched confirmed bachelor out of Midsummer Murders. Despite its inaccuracy, uh, Nicholson's portrait of Lewis seems to have remained influential. In Mark St. Germain's successful 2009 play, Freud's Last Session, the American playwright also gives us a reserved, emotionally repressed English Lewis. In the play, which I saw at Smock Alley in Dublin in 2013, we witness a meeting stroke therapy session between Lewis and Sigmund Freud days before Freud's assisted suicide in London in 1939. The two great intellectuals debate the nature of existence as they wait for war to be declared between Britain and Germany. The play is well-crafted, especially with regards to its use of sound. Also in its favor is the fact that unlike Kreef's play, in which Lewis beats up on the worldviews represented by Kennedy and Huxley, St. Germain gives equal weight to the arguments presented by the Christian Lewis and the atheist Freud, and this keeps the dramatic tension taut throughout. As with Shadowlands, the play's main flaw lies in its reliance on aligning Lewis with the stereotype of the reserved, unemotional Englishman who must be loosened up by a more relaxed foreigner, in this case, the Austrian Freud. Lewis's Englishness is made clear in the play when he refers uh, on one occasion to we English and when he lets Freud call him an Englishman without correcting him at all. Uh, remember Lewis's I'm Irish, not English quote cited above. So anyway, uh, St. Germain goes to even greater lengths than Nicholson in suppressing Lewis's Irishness and implying his unequivocal Englishness. During one extended discussion with Freud, Lewis recounts a number of childhood memories involving his father and brother, and as in Shadowlands, neglects to mention that they all took place in Belfast. 
Likewise, during the same section of the play, Lewis mocks the long and fiery sermons preached by his devout, spiritually intolerant grandfather, quote, the vicar of our local church, end quote. Certainly the fact that this preacher was an Ulster Unionist preaching such sermons in East Belfast would warrant some comment if Lewis were actually opening up to Freud. Uh, for the real, Lewis was always quick to criticize what he called the, quote, provincialism, narrow Ulster bigotry, and sleek unreality, end quote, of his Belfast relations. St. Germain follows up this section by pulling a quote out of context from Lewis's biography, in which Lewis says of his conversion, quote, I was the most reluctant convert in all England, end quote. The fact that this quote follows immediately on from Lewis's recounting of childhood experiences implies that all those experiences took place in England. This allows St. Germain to maintain and strengthen his picture of the buttoned-up English Lewis. In Freud's last session, there are other examples of events from Lewis's life that are distorted or misrepresented by stripping of their Irish contexts. Unlike Nicholson, St. Germain bravely touches on two key formative experiences for Lewis, his time in the trenches during the Great War and his relationship with Mrs. Moore. If the real Lewis discussed his traumatic war service with a therapist like Freud, one would imagine that he would mention the fact that he didn't actually have to serve, since Ireland didn't have conscription, and may even have added that his Unionist father suggested that he avoid serving at the front by joining the UVF. Of course, Lewis, who had previously disclosed to his family that he was a home ruler, like his colorful maternal grandmother, uh, Mary Hamilton, nay Warren from County Cork, rejected this proposal outright. Similarly, St. Germain has Freud suggest that Lewis uh, was attempting to replace his mother when he moved in with Mrs. Moore. And yet we never learned that that lady was, like the deceased Mrs. Lewis, an Irish Protestant, a fact that could only have added drama and heat to the arguments between Lewis and Freud over this aspect of Lewis's past. The most recent high-profile play inspired by Lewis's life, 2016's The Most Reluctant Convert by Panama-born Max McLean, takes its title from the aforementioned quote from Lewis's spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And this monologue play is essentially a stage version of that brilliant memoir. This production, which starred McLean as Lewis, was one in a series of successful stage adaptations of Lewis's work by McLean and his New York City-based company, The Fellowship of Performing Arts. They've mounted stage versions of The Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce as well. The Most Reluctant Convert was eventually turned into a feature film, which was released in 2021, and which once again starred McLean as Lewis. The screenplay, as shall be noted below, differed somewhat from the stage version. However, in both versions, we still get quite an English Lewis, though to be fair to McLean, he's more open to Lewis's Irish background than the other playwrights covered in this paper. Towards the start of the script to the stage play, Lewis mentions that, quote, father was a solicitor at Belfast, Ireland, end quote. And after discussing the death of his mother, refers to his father as, quote, a temperamental Irish widower, end quote. In the stage and film versions of the play, McLean, who performed Lewis as having a thoroughly English accent, attempted to subsequently deliver quotes from Lewis's father, uh, Albert, in what can only be described as a Hollywood Irish accent. Albert Lewis might possibly have spoken in a somewhat mixed accent, having spent early decades of his life in Cork, Belfast, Lurgan, and Dublin. But McLean's choice to speak uh, to uh, cho choice speaks to an attitude that problematically regards Ireland as relatively monolithic, uh, linguistically speaking. McLean's ignorance in this area is revealed again later when Lewis is sent to school in Surrey to study under the great knock, William Kirkpatrick, an Ulster Scot who had previously been Albert's headmaster at Lurgan College. 
In the stage directions to the script, McLean describes Kirkpatrick's uh, accent as a Scottish accent without acknowledging, as Lewis does in Surprise by Joy, and through the fictional character that he created based on Kirkpatrick, McPhee, from the Cosmic Trilogy, that the Great Knock was very much an Ulster Scot. Indeed, McLean elides Kirkpatrick's Ulster identity not only by attempting to perform him with a Shrek-like Scottish accent, but also by uh, changing or more accurately adapting a key line about the teacher that appears in Surprise by Joy. McLean has Lewis say that Kirkpatrick, quote, was a Presbyterian atheist. On Sundays, he gardened in slightly nicer clothes, end quote. But in the original book, Lewis writes, quote, an Ulster Scot may come to disbelieve in God, but not to wear his weekday clothes on the Sabbath, end quote. Better line, I think. Anyway. Uh, similarly, while McLean's play is refreshing in that it is made clear that Lewis spent his formative years in Belfast, we get no real sense of the city itself or of Irish life more generally in the play. Indeed, this is even true of the firm film version in which Albert Lewis is played uh, with a Welsh accent by the excellent Welsh actor Richard Harrington, with a line, line added in about Lewis's father being Welsh by blood, which is true enough in the sense that Albert's father was born in Saltney on the Welsh side of the border. But it's still another example of McLean downplaying Lewis's Irishness. And Kirkpatrick is played in the film with what might best be described as an Anglo-Scots accent by the Scottish actor David Grant. That said, Lewis's mother Flora is played in the film in her one line of audible spoken dialogue with a, what we might call a demotic Munster accent. Probably not the accent that Flora would have possessed given her ascendancy background and formative years spent not just in Cork, but also Rome and Belfast. However, it's still a rare example of Irishness getting significant acknowledgement in The Most Reluctant Convert, which of course takes its title from that Most Reluctant Convert in England uh, line again. Other examples of Irishness being downplayed in the stage version of McLean's play include the fact that Lewis spends a long time ruminating on figures who had a big impact on his intellectual and spiritual development. Three of these key figures are Irish, W.B. Yeats, Neville Coggle, and an unnamed friend who went quote-unquote mad by getting too immersed in the occult, but their nationality is never mentioned. And Yeats's Irishness was a huge part of his appeal for Lewis. In a letter to that same Belfast friend, Arthur Greaves, Lewis complains about the fact that his English friends don't adequately appreciate Yeats, but adds, quote, perhaps his appeal is purely Irish. If so, then thank the gods that I'm Irish, end quote. In the film version, poor Neville Coggle's role is reduced to Lewis briefly meeting him in a hallway. So, yeah, that's sad. Uh, and while neither the stage nor film version mentions Lewis's time attending Campbell College in Belfast, of which Lewis was proud to the end of his life, he's depicted in the film as attending the fictional St. Donald's School, a name that has a vaguely Ulster Scots ring. However, the one teacher we meet from the school, the dancing mistress who is partially responsible for Lewis's sexual awakening, speaks with an English accent, once again making it unclear where exactly Lewis was educated prior to his time with the Great Knock. While I enjoyed and was in fact moved by the Irish and American productions that I saw of these plays, each experience was marred by the fact that the four authors either completely ignored or greatly downplayed Lewis's Belfast background. These plays would certainly have been enriched by engagement with what Lewis's friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, described as the, quote, ulterior motives, end quote, that underpinned so many of Lewis's life choices. Ultimately, one of the most unfortunate outcomes of the popularity of these works is their role in obscuring Lewis's true background. Like the United Irishman Thomas uh, Russell, another Ulsterman with strong Cork connections, Lewis is in danger of becoming the man from God knows where. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. We were hearing there from Dr. David Clare. He gave that presentation at a C.S. Lewis symposium called Now We Have Faces. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com where you can also find lots of great articles and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.